0: We discussed Acts chapter 2, and Acts chapter 2 was all about this early church, just been started, very young, and sure enough, this church was trying to be the type of church that God was calling them to be. And so we looked at all these traits that that church had, all these successful traits that helped them to become a God-honoring church. We looked at things like being committed to Scripture's teaching about who Christ is, We talked about being committed to communion and remembering who Christ is in every single aspect of our lives. We talked about being committed to prayer for one another, for leaders, for everybody. We talked about taking care of one another financially, helping those who are hurting. We talked about all these traits, and then we asked a difficult question at the end of the sermon. And that question was this. If our church were to close its doors tomorrow, would anyone notice? Would anyone in the community notice? It's a tough question to answer. I've heard some feedback this week. I've heard some would say, yeah, I think so. I've heard some would say, maybe not. And that's a question that I also want to explore today. If our church closes doors tomorrow, would anyone notice? Because last week, as important as what we talked about last week was, really everything we talked about last week was in-house. It was the things that the church did, the early church did, in-house to help, help themselves become the church that God wanted them to be. It was all stuff they did inside. And that stuff is important, but at the same time, if you read that passage, you might assume that, hey, all we need to do is be devoted to teaching, praying for one another, taking care of one another, and avoid conflict, and we'll be all right. That's all we need to do. Is that all that church did? No, it's not. There was a next step. That church, even though things were going really, really well inside their own four walls, per se, they still were on the offensive. They were going out into their community. The apostles were and they were preaching the gospel to people who hadn't heard it, going to the synagogues, going to the large places of gathering and telling people who Christ was. They weren't content just managing things inside and waiting for people to come to them. They were on the offensive. They were going out into their community. And we need to be doing the same thing as a church. That's the next step from what we talked about last week. The next step to being the church that Scripture calls us to be. You know, there's a lot of ways to do that. There's a lot of ways to go out and bring your church and get your church's name out there. You can come up with clever marketing campaigns. You can send out really nice mailers. You can come up with some publicity stunt to get some cameras to come to your church. Maybe that'll get your church's name out there. You can build a huge obnoxious building, and maybe that will help people know that your church is a church. And I guess those are all ways that would work, but are those really the ways that we see in Scripture? And I would say the answer to that is no. Getting our church's name out there is not about a marketing strategy. It's not about building a huge building. It's not about a publicity stunt. Getting the church's name out there, getting Prairie View's name out there into our community, it's a one-by-one grassroots movement. It's not something that we do by volume. It's something that we do individually, a little at a time, with patience, being intentional. That's what it's about. So that's what we're going to be looking at today. If you have a Bible with you, open up to Luke chapter 10, Verses 25 through 37. And I'm going to start reading there. I'm going to read verses 25 through 29 if you'd like to follow along. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor is the key question of this entire passage. This guy goes up to Jesus, this lawyer, and he asks Jesus this question. It's a pretty reasonable question, a question that most of us would probably ask Jesus if we could walk up to him. And that question was, how do I inherit eternal life? But this guy isn't just innocently asking Jesus. He's got some sort of ulterior motive because it says that he's trying to put Jesus to the test. Maybe he's trying to get Jesus to say something wrong. Maybe he's trying to verify some rumors that he heard Jesus said something. Maybe he's trying to get Jesus to say something that would contradict something he said earlier. But he's putting him to the test. He's not just innocently seeking to learn from him. He's got something else going on. And throughout the Gospels, Jesus recognizes this. Jesus is no idiot. When people are trying to trap him, when people are trying to get him to mess up, he knows it. He knows how to handle it. And he does the same thing here. And so this guy asks him, how do I inherit eternal life? And Jesus says to him, well, how do you think you inherit eternal life? He answers his question with a question. And the guy says, well, um, I've always been taught that I'm supposed to love the Lord my God with all my heart and soul and mind and strength and love my neighbor as myself. And that's really a great answer. It really is. The guy is citing Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. And that's known as the Shema. And this was probably the most important passage in the entire Old Testament. It was a passage that every single Jewish person recited daily. It was a passage that shaped anything and everything they did. You learned it from day one. And it says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And so for this guy, this is the foolproof answer. This is the answer that he should give when it comes to the question of how do you inherit eternal life? If you're a Jew in that time, if you get asked a question about God and you don't know it, you just go to Deuteronomy 6. That is just the default answer. It's kind of like Sunday school where if someone asks a question, you just say, Jesus. And it's like, okay, fine. So that's the answer he gives. But he doesn't just leave it at that. He combines Deuteronomy 6 with Leviticus nineteen eighteen, And that passage says this. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So we read this passage. And this guy... Ask Jesus this question, and he gives a good answer. And as you look at it, Jesus says, you have answered correctly. Now, if you're this guy, and you're talking to Jesus, and Jesus says, hey, good answer, I'm thinking at that point, hey,
1: quit while you're ahead.
0: Quit while you're ahead, take your pride, and leave. And say, you know what, I asked Jesus a question, and I was right. That's what I would do. I don't know about you, but that's what I would do. But he doesn't go there. He doesn't just stop while he's ahead. ahead. He asks the question. He's desiring to justify himself. And he says to Jesus, well, who's my neighbor? That's the only question the guy has left. Who's my neighbor? Because in this guy's mind, if loving your neighbor is about what he thinks it's about, then he's been doing pretty well. Because if you look at that passage in Leviticus, there's one little qualifier that you might even miss when you read that passage in, in verse 18 it says the sons of your own people the sons of your own people that's how you're supposed to love your neighbor so in this guy's mind he's been doing pretty well because as far as he knows loving your neighbor means loving your fellow jew loving people that are like me loving people that meet my standards and jesus is teaching here it's not new the idea of loving your neighbor But what's new is that Jesus is saying, hey, your neighbor is not just the people that meet your standards. It's not just the people who are like you. It's not just the people who meet your qualifications. And the guy doesn't seem to get it. The guy just can't understand how Jesus could say that, how Jesus could expand this definition of what the word neighbor even means. And Jesus realizes that. And so Jesus decides to tell him a story. And the story goes like this. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. So Jesus decides to tell this guy a story. And the story is about the stretch of road between Jerusalem and Jericho. And this was a 17-mile stretch of road that was notoriously dangerous everyone knew that this was the type of road that you don't travel on alone this is the type of road that you don't travel on at night because it was notorious for beatings and jumpings and robbings and sure enough this guy travels down the road as far as we know he's by himself and what happens he gets beat up he gets stripped he gets robbed and they leave him half dead And if you're this lawyer, you're thinking, okay, that sounds like a pretty reasonable story. That sounds pretty realistic. I've heard of people who've gotten beat up on that road. But then this is where the story takes a turn. And this is where things get a little bit weird for the lawyer, where Jesus kind of turns things on its head. Because Jesus says that a Levite and a priest pass by, and both of them ignore the man. In fact, they don't just ignore him, they go to the other side of the road, So they're pretending he's not even there. So they might be thinking, you know what? If I get blamed for not helping him, at least I can say, well, I was on the other side of the road. I didn't see him. So they're trying to get out of it. And the reason that would throw this lawyer for a loop is that the priests and the Levites, they were the ones who were supposed to get it. They were the ones who understood what it meant to love God, to love your neighbor. They were supposed to understand it better than anybody else. And yet, what do they do? They ignore the man. The people that this lawyer usually views as heroes, Jesus in this story is turning them into villains. They're supposed to understand it and they don't. They ignore him. They pretend he's not there. And the guys left behind, still half dead, still needing help. Another weird part of the story is that Jesus goes one step farther and he says, not only do the priests and the Levites ignore him, but the person who stops and helps him, is a Samaritan. Jews and Samaritans absolutely despise one another. They could not stand one another. They were mortal enemies. If you were a Jew and you needed to go someplace, you took the long way around if it helped you avoid going through Samaritan territory. They couldn't stand one another, and it all went back hundreds of years. In 722 BC, Assyria came in and overtook Israel and exiled Israel. And in that day, if you wanted to exile a people, one of the big things you did is you wanted to erase any record of their existence. You wanted to get rid of their culture. You wanted to get rid of their rituals, their traditions, their language, their clothes, their names, their religion, their architecture, everything. You wanted to wipe them off the map so that whenever people would come through that land, they wouldn't even, they wouldn't even know that those people existed at one point. And so Assyria does just that. They wipe the culture off the map. But a few decades later, another world power comes in. Assyria gets overtaken, and this other world power says, well, Israel, uh, you guys have been here for a while, but we don't really have any use of you. So if you want to, you can go back to Israel. You can go back to that promised land if you want to. And all the old Israelites are thinking, yes! We get to fulfill our heritage. We get to finally go back and practice our traditions again. And things are going to be like they used to be. But some Jews at this point, they were thinking, you know what? I've been here for a pretty long time. I mean, I got married here. I have a job here. This is where I live. This is where we raised our kids. I married an Assyrian woman. This is all I know. So honestly, I mean, that's great that we get that land back. And that's great that the old people are happy that the heritage is restored. But I think i'm just gonna stay here. I'm pretty happy where i'm at And for those people who stayed They were reviled from that point forward because they were viewed as half-breeds They were viewed as people who didn't appreciate where they came from They were people who, who were viewed as not appreciating the land that god had given them from the exodus because they chose not to return to it And so from that point forward they were enemies They were the worst of the worst They weren't real Jews. They were sellouts. And from that point forward, they hate each other. And so this lawyer has spent his entire life viewing Samaritans as the enemy, viewing Samaritans as the villain. And yet Jesus is telling this story and saying, guess what? The Samaritan's the hero. The Samaritan's the only one who truly understands what it means to be a neighbor. I mean, look at what he did. He gives up time. I mean, he stops and he helps the guy. He takes him to an inn. That took time. He was probably late to wherever he was going. He sacrifices his reputation. I mean, what if fellow Samaritans see him helping this guy and they say, now, wait a minute. Jews hate us. Why are you helping him? At that point, he might even be disowned by the Samaritans and disowned by the Jews. And so he's sacrificing reputation and he's sacrificing money. He takes the guy to the inn and he gives him two denarii to the innkeeper. And two denarii was effectively two days worth of work. So that's a lot of money back then. And for all he knows, if he gives it to the innkeeper and says, hey, whatever else you need, put it on my tab. The innkeeper could take advantage of that. And he could beef that up a little bit more than he actually was. But that's not the guy's concern. His concern is compassion. Loving his neighbor. That's the main point. So does the guy get the story? I think he does. If you read in verse 36 and 37, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, you go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. You know, oftentimes we read this story. We hear the term Good Samaritan and we're tempted to just minimalize it to, oh, this is a story about being nice. This is a story about taking care of other people, being compassionate, being a kind person. And that's definitely a point of it. We do need to be compassionate and kind. But the thing is, this story is so much bigger than just that. This story is not just about being kind. It's about breaking down the barriers that exist between people. It's about telling people, you know what? You're different than me, but I'm going to love you. I have nothing to do with you, but you're my neighbor and I'm going to love you. You don't meet my standards, but I'm going to love you. It's about the hope-filled person breaking the barrier between himself and the hopeless person. It's about reaching down a hand to the people who are hurting. The people who are worse than us. The people who aren't as good as us. It's about breaking down barriers. It's about loving without expecting anything in return. It's about loving sacrificially, not just as a feeling, but to the point of giving up reputation, of giving up time, of giving up money. That's what the love that this guy shows. It's about loving anyone and everyone, no matter where they are, what their background is, where they are now, or where they're going to be in the future. That's what it means to love a neighbor. It's not just the people like us. It looks like loving the criminal who we think doesn't deserve any of our time. It's about loving the foreign person who we wish they would just learn our language because it makes us uncomfortable. But we love them anyway. It's about loving the person who's living the sexual lifestyle that we think is wrong. Doesn't matter. Love them. Period. It's about loving the person who we think has betrayed us and will never give us anything in return for it. It's loving the person who, if we love them, we're never going to get anything out of it. But we do it anyway. That's what loving your neighbor is about. Breaking down barriers. That's the whole point. You know, as I look at this passage and you look at the Samaritan... A lot of times, preachers will take a passage like this, and they will ask the question, and it's a valid question, of, well, if you're a follower of Christ, are you the priest slash Levite who doesn't help, or are you the Samaritan who does help? Which one are you going to be? And that's definitely a good point, but I think there's another point that we need to get at, and there's another role that we might just be playing in the story, and we're going to get to that in just a second. But before that, I want to do a quick test, okay? And this is not rhetorical. This is not a trick question. If you look up on the screen, there's going to be a graphic, okay? And as you can see, there are nine blocks. I almost said squares, but they're t- maybe technically rectangles. Uh, quadrilaterals. There are nine quadrilaterals. Eight of them are red, and one of them is yellow, okay? And so I, what I want you to picture is, I want you to picture your house is the yellow quadrilateral. And the other eight red ones around it, they're your neighbors, okay? And so here's the question. I want you to raise your hand as I ask these questions. We're going to go one by one. Well, not one by one, like each of you, but you get my point. Um, raise your hand, and I'm going to ask you, okay, how many of you right now could raise your hand and say that you know one of your neighbors? Pretty good, just about everybody. What about two? Three. Four. Five. Six. Seven. How many of you could say you know all eight? I am seeing five people. Six people, six people. I'm seeing six people. And there's probably what, 75 people here? And the reason I ask that is because it's hard for us to love our neighbors if we don't know our neighbors. That's the whole point. And yes, in this passage, the term neighbor refers not just to the people that you live close to, but that's where it all starts. The people that we live closest to. We can't love them if we don't know them. And you know how many of our neighbors we know? Zero. We seriously do not know a single neighbor of ours. And yeah, you could say that, you know what, yeah, you've lived there for two weeks, and that's true, but we still need to get out there. We need to meet our neighbors. We need to love our neighbors because we live in this society that we seek to isolate ourselves from other people. And scripture tells us to love other people. We live in a society where you can wake up and you can go to work without seeing any of your neighbors. You can pull out of your driveway. Most of your work can be done through email. So you're not even really having a face-to-face conversation with people. And then it comes lunchtime, but you are so busy that you don't want to sit and eat lunch with other people. So you take it back to your desk. And so then you work for the rest of the day, you get home at 6, you pull in the garage, before you even get out of the car, you press the button for the garage door to close the door behind you, and then you walk inside, and if you're going to cook, maybe you cook outside to where you can see your neighbors, but then you think, you know what, I'd rather grill in the backyard behind my privacy fence. And then you go inside, you eat dinner, you watch TV, you go to bed, and you do the same thing the next day. And you can go weeks and months and years without knowing the people who live 100 feet away from you. And that's a problem. It's a problem if we're called to love our neighbors and we never see them. It's a problem if we're called to love our neighbors and we don't go out of our way to get to know them. We can't love them if we don't know them. That's the point. And we can't love our neighbors if we don't know the people that we shop with. The people that go to the same gym as us. The people who go to the same restaurants as us, the people who cut our grass, the people who deliver our mail. We are called to love the people that we have access to, and so often we isolate ourselves from them. And sometimes we just choose not to love people because they don't meet our standards. Because they don't match up to what we think deserves our love. And Jesus is saying, no, every single person you come into contact with deserves to be loved as a neighbor. And the beauty of this is that it makes every single place you go, every single thing you do, every single person you meet, it makes it a ministry opportunity. You are given an opportunity to love someone. And you may look at it and you think, you know what, I, you know, I know all eight of my neighbors, but six of them already have a church, and two of them have already told me they don't want to come to my church. Who cares? Love them anyway. Keep loving them. We don't love our neighbors just because we want them to come to church with us. We don't love our neighbors just because we want to increase numbers. We love our neighbors because that's just what we do. That's just what followers of Christ do. We love our neighbors, and it's one by one. You know, and it's tempting to go around and do massive volume outreach things, but I would argue that what we see in Scripture is that every single person in this church, if we want to do outreach, it takes every single one of us, one by one, little by little, having patience, giving it time, instead of just knocking on doors, getting to know the people behind the door. That's what outreach looks like. That's what it looks like to take the gospel outside of Prairie View and put it in the community. Little by little. It's not about marketing campaigns. It's not about publicity stunts. It's about you and I taking it upon ourselves to love our neighbors. Not expecting anything in return. Regardless of what happens. That's the whole idea that Jesus gets at. Back to that question of who would you be in the story. A lot of times people do ask, are you the priest or Levite who ignores him? Are you the Samaritan who loves him? And those are all good questions. It's all a very valid and valuable way to preach this passage, but I'm going to go about it a little bit differently. And I would say that we do all have a role to play in the story, but our role is of the beat up man. That's who we are. If you're a follower of Christ, you've been at that point where you've been broken. You have been in need of healing you've been left alone you've been abandoned you've been left for dead And yet one day you wake up in an inn And you realize that you've been taken care of Your wounds are healed your bandages are gone because christ took those wounds on the cross for you And when you experience that There's only two responses to make You know, sometimes I look at this story and I think about those two responses and I picture this guy Waking up in an inn. He rubs his eyes. He has no idea where he is He looks down at his hands and he sees bruises and cuts. He looks at his legs and he sees bruises and cuts He looks around and he has no idea. How did he get here? And so I picture this man stumbling down the stairs Hardly able to keep himself upright And he walks up to this strange looking innkeeper he's never seen before and he says, man, how did I get here? What happened to me? Like, I look terrible. What happened? And the innkeeper says, oh, man, you, you were really in bad shape a couple days ago. A guy brought you in, and he brought you in on his horse or on his animal. It doesn't say horse. It says animal. He brought you in on his animal, and you were in bad shape. But this guy paid for you to take, get taken care of. He gave me money. He bandaged you up. And he told me that whatever else you needed to just put on his tab. And if you're that guy, you're thinking, oh, thank goodness, one of my friends happened to be going down the road. Or one of my family members happened to be going down the road. And then the innkeeper says, well, actually, the guy said he was a stranger. And what's even weirder is that I could tell by looking at him that he was a Samaritan. And if you're that Jew, you're thinking, wait a minute. After everything I've done to these Samaritans, this Samaritan saved my life. And those two responses that he would have, I would certainly imagine, would be number one, he would want to find that Samaritan and thank him. And number two, he would want to take the grace that he experienced, that he didn't deserve, and he would want the other people around him to experience the same thing. He would be saying to himself, you know what, this is the most amazing thing I've ever experienced in my life, and I can't keep this to myself. I want other people to feel the way that I just felt. And so because of that, I'm going to love my neighbor. And it's not just going to be the neighbor I thought it was before. It's not just going to be the people who meet my standards and the people who are like me, but I'm going to find Samaritans and I'm going to love them. No matter what, because I can't get over what he did for me. And we are called to have the same response. We look at what Christ did for us. And how can we respond any way differently than to say, you know what? I want every single person I come into contact with to experience the same grace that I have. That's the point. And that's the challenge for us to love our neighbors. You know, I was reading this week for this sermon and... There were some really interesting interpretations of this passage. One of them, there's a guy named Origen. and He was one of the early church fathers. And he contributed a ton to the health of the early church. But I don't want to knock him, but I am kind of knocking him here. Um, he had this interpretation of this passage, okay? He read this passage, and he thought it was all an allegory. And Origen said that Jerusalem was just symbolic for paradise. Jericho was the world robbers were enemies of the gospel The priest was the law The prophets or the uh, levite was the prophets The samaritan was christ The animal was the body of christ The inn was the church The innkeeper were he symbolized angels The two denarii were knowledge of the father and of the son And then the samaritan coming back would be the return of christ And, you know, I read that, and I think, you know, that's really creative. I mean, I'll give him points for creativity, but I just wonder, did anyone ever stop Origen and say, you know, hey, look, you know, I know you're wise, and you're educated and everything, and you've had such a positive impact on the church, but did you ever just think that maybe this really is just about loving your neighbor? And Origen would probably say, hmm, nah, it's all about Christ, and it's all about how God's love is symbolized for us in this story. And that's all well and good, but sometimes we take these simple passages, these passages that tell us things like love your neighbor and love your enemy, and we overcomplicate them because we don't want to confront the challenge for what it truly is. And then we take passages that are complicated and we oversimplify them. We do the exact opposite, when really the passage is telling us, hey, go out and love your neighbor. And that's enough of a challenge in and of itself. Love your neighbor. That's what we're called to do. And if we do that one by one, little by little, this church's name and Christ's name is going to be out in the community. And if we are a church that's full of people that love their neighbors and then we close our doors, people will notice that. People will notice because this community would be a better place if that church were still here. Because those people loved the people that no one else wanted to love. Those people loved every single person they came into contact with. And once again, we don't just do this for church growth. We don't just do this to get our name out there. We do it because that's just what we do. Followers of Christ just do that. And if you look at outreach, I think I was once asked this question. If you could summarize outreach in one sentence, what would it be? And I would summarize it as love and serve until people ask why. Love and serve until people ask why. Do that. Do it over again and over again and over again with every single person you come into contact with. And people will notice if Prairie View were to shut its doors. Because we'll be a church that loves their neighbors. And that's what we're called to be. That's what Christ calls us to be. That is how outreach happens. Loving our neighbors intentionally, indiscriminately, not expecting anything in return. That's what it's all about. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the challenge that you've given us to love our neighbors. Thank you for the incredible gift of grace that you've given us, that that experience that we have, that we've been broken That we've been hurting, that we've been that person on the side of the road, left for dead. And when we see your cross, we realize that those wounds that we had are healed. That you've taken those wounds upon yourself for us. And that gives us hope. And God, when we experience that for what it is, I pray that we will take that response seriously. The response of wanting other people to feel the same thing. Wanting people to feel that grace the way we felt it. I pray that we'll listen to your spirit as he guides us, as we find ways to love our neighbors, as we reach out to the people we live by, the people we shop with, the people that we go to school with, the people we work with. I pray that you'll give us courage and strength to do that. God, most of all, I thank you for your son. And I thank you that he loved us the way the Samaritan man loved the beat up man. And I pray that this week, we can be a Samaritan to our neighbors. We love you. We ask these things in Christ's name.